I'm Fathery. This is Dave. This is Trent. This is Brian. And this is Text Trek. Engage. Welcome back to the Starship Texas for the 73rd Text Trek podcast, your home of Star Trek fandom from deep in the heart of Texas. And tonight we are talking about the beloved genius. <laughs> you know what? Ma- amongst our comments, there are there are there's fans. There's definitely fans. Fair it does not experience the revival that Trek the Motion Picture has. But they're a fan. <laughs> it's well, time will come. Can, can I say the name of this masterpiece? No. It is William Shatner's Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Magnum opus. How did we end up in this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not the last time you'll ask yourself that, my friend. Um, you know, I, I think it should have William Shatner's name in it. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> it's like, uh, you, you can't escape this. You have to take yeah. ownership of it. Yeah. Um, to, to be fair, I think he has acknowledged that it is a, a flawed movie. He has Show a... them what you did. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so just, just to give like a little bit of the, the, the backstory of what, in, what went into making this was, um, Leonard Nimoy successfully directed the previous two Trek movies with Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4. Um, he, he used that as a, uh, part of his, uh, negotiations to come back for Star Trek 3 was mm-hmm. he wanted to direct. So, uh, part of the negotiations to get Shatner to come back for Star Trek 4 was that if there was a Star Trek 5, he wanted to direct. Then I also heard that there is a clause in Nimoy and Shatner's contracts that if either of them got something, it had to be offered to the other one also. Mm-hmm. So this, this is the, the, uh, product of that arrangement. You said that, like, back in, uh, at once upon a time in, uh, TOS era, that Shatner was on the verge of doing some directing. Had yes. the series continued, if this if the series had continued, he was going to start directing there, and he did do some directing on T.J. Hooker, and he also directed some stage stuff. So this isn't exactly his directorial debut, but it was his first, and um, it wasn't his only movie. I think he did something else after this, didn't he? What Run. if he directed Star Trek? <laughs> what if he directed? What if he directed Star Trek Five for the stage? <laughs> Just think about it. The budget would be pretty close. Yeah, it would have it would have been the best play since Spider Man Turn Off the Dark. <laughs> yeah, it did feel very stagey. <laughs> uh, but this movie obviously was viewed as a big failure. There were a few factors going into that. It came out in 1989, a huge year for movies. It had uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Right, and anyone alive back then will tell you like that was a, a huge deal. That was probably like, yeah. the biggest. 
blockbuster that wasn't a Star Wars movie in, up to that point. Yeah, uh, yeah. There, there's not too many, I think, sort of landmark years that I quite remember like that, but like, you know, Jurassic Park and a few, a handful of others. Well, Jurassic Park in. wasn't in 89. No, it I know, but I'm just, I'm talking about after, before and after oh. two. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was for sure a big one. Well, you also had, uh, Lethal Weapon 2, Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, Indiana Jones 3, and it was so busy, in fact, that Industrial Light and Magic had to tell Paramount, hey, we're too busy, we cannot do the special effects for the Star Trek movie. Uh, so the effects went to a very, uh, subpar effects house, and that didn't work out too well. Nope. Um, there was also <laughs> a writer's strike in, I guess in 88... Uh, but that also I, I would strike too if they said I had to work with Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it, it really affected like the shooting schedule of this, and um, it, it does sound like Shatner kind of blew the budget early on in production, and the studio kind of lost faith that this movie was salvageable. And so when he asked them for more money, they refused. Mm-hmm. So when what we got was Star Trek Five. Speaking of uh, like, I think you've mentioned like the. La- um... Last Crusade, Indiana Jones 3. It wasn't like uh, Sean Connery supposed to be Cybok or something. That is true, yes. He what was could supposed have been, to be man? the brother of Spock. Uh, and the the comment that I always hear when people talk about that is, it would have been really awkward if you had a guy named Sean Connery talking about something called Shakari. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Shakari was actually, that was a, a, a reference to getting Sean Connery. That was del- a deliberate... Oh, really? Song. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, like, like I think when they, when they... Uh, what I heard was when they couldn't get Sean Connery, that's when it was Shakari became kind oh, of a that's thing. that's weird. That's what I heard. You know, here's uh, the thing. I actually... Uh, uh, I don't remember that... Well, who's the name of the actor who played um, uh, Cybok? Or, I want to say Lawrence Luckbill or something. Oh I yeah, it is, it's kind of an odd thing like that. I actually think he's one of the stronger, yeah. uh, stronger roles in it, and like he does a lot of, of work with it. I I don't know that I would have like Sean Connery. Of course, would have brought something to it, but Sean Connery the Vulcan <laughs> seems a little chilly. Uh, You've taken not, the first stops. <laughs> not as the silly, together, but not as silly as Zardoz <laughs> shared it with me. Yeah. Um... So, I, I, in a weird way, I, I think I'm glad that they got the guy they did. It's one of the yep. stronger points in the movie. A, a movie which, uh, I should say, I liked Wait. more on revisit than I expected to. Flaws, warts and all. Well, you, you probably couldn't have liked it any less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's, it's been so long since I'd seen it. I don't think I... I might have hated it. <laughs> this, this was the first movie I saw in the theater. Yeah. The first Star Trek, the first Star Trek, movie. Star Trek, Star Trek movie. movie I saw in the theater. I'd seen a handful of cartoons and stuff. And, or Star and yet Wars your fandom movies. continues. Well, yeah. I, I had just become a Star Trek fan in the last two year, two or three years. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited. I was going to get to see a Star Trek movie in the theater. And it was going to be amazing. And I was, I, I was a teenager. And I went there. And I watched it. And I came out. And I thought, huh. <laughs> that did not impress me. As that. Boy, I must, I must not be the Star Trek fan I thought I was. <laughs> What's wrong with I, me? There's something yeah. wrong with me because I thought that would really blow me away, so, and that was just kind of okay. Man, uh, I suggest being an older person and your first movie being uh, Wrath of Khan. I will die sooner, but I got to see Wrath of Khan as my first uh, movie in the, in the theater. Yes, no, that was definitely the way to go. I need to get a time machine and go talk to my parents yeah, about definitely. this. Yep. So... <laughs> Well, I'm just going to refresh our audience out there in case you haven't rewatched this recently and just give a quick rundown of the movie's story, what we call the Trans Warp Summary here at Text Truck. Let's hit it. 
Our movie begins with Admiral, I, I mean Captain Kirk, enjoying the great outdoors on a camping trip with Spock and Dr. McCoy. But their R&R is cut short when Admiral Bob orders the brand spanking new Enterprise A on a mission. There's trouble in the neutral zone, and the Enterprise is the only ship in range. Even though none of the systems on the new ship seem to be working right, there should be plenty of Starfleet ships between Earth and the neutral zone, and the fact that the Enterprise only has a skeleton crew of 60-year-olds. But Admiral Bob says they're the only ship for the job. So the crew set course for Nimbus 3, advertised as the planet of galactic peace but actually looks like a shithole full of galactic lowlives. It is a neutral home of ambassadors from the Federation, Klingon Empire, and Romulan Star Empire. A renegade Vulcan named Cybok, who is very un-Vulcan-y in that he is a laughing space hippie on some kind of religious crusade, leads a band of followers and takes control of Mos Eisley, I, I mean Paradise City, on Nimbus 3. From there, he holds the ambassadors hostage. So the Enterprise shows up to rescue the hostages, but instead our heroes get captured by Cybok, who comes on board their ship and takes over the entire crew. He possesses the ability to see people's deepest inner pain, and through his own brand of Vulcan telepathy, he can grant an individual the power to overcome their pain and become his grateful servants on his holy mission. And Bombshell, it turns out that he's Spock's brother. Well, half-brother. Now that Cybok is in control of the ship, he explains that his plan is to fly to the center of the galaxy where he expects to meet God in paradise, or shaka as he calls it. However, Kirk, Spock, and Dr. McCoy all manage to resist Cybok's spell and maintain their free will. Cybok is still running the show, and the Enterprise proceeds to the Great Barrier at the center of the galaxy. The ship crosses the barrier while being pursued by a Klingon bird of prey on their own crusade to assassinate their enemy, Captain Kirk. On the other side of the barrier, there is, in fact, a planet. Cybok accompanies Kirk, Spock, and Bones down to the planet's surface, and instead of finding Shakari, they find a bunch of purple rocks in the desert. But God himself shows up, or some godlike space entity, in the form of a big blue glowing space head. The self-proclaimed God turns out to be pretty evil and demands the Enterprise be brought closer so that this wicked, non-corporeal life form might escape from the center of the galaxy and roam the stars freely. Cybok, seeing the error of his ways, sacrifices himself so that the others can escape. The Enterprise rains down some torpedo fire on the so-called god, and Spock even ends up in the Klingon bird of prey, shooting disruptors at the Almighty, and apparently commits deicide, slaying this false god. But this is not anywhere near as cool as it sounds. In fact, it's all kind of lame and anticlimactic. We end with Kirk saying that, that maybe God is in the human heart, and the three friends return to Earth to continue their camping trip. The end. You know, if uh, Cybok had survived, he probably could have been like a, you know, great healer in the galaxy. Um, yeah, I feel like he probably would have needed to do some time in a, a penal colony, but I'm a, <laughs> I'm a believer in rehabilitation. I, I think Cybok was very rehabilitatable. So. You know, uh, Kirk just, like, turned Khan loose like a, this epic-level war criminal. He gave him a paradise planet at the time. Cybok could get one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so we'll I mean, just honestly think about it. Yeah, yeah, a green planet with lush trees and fruit trees, and all of Cybok's followers coming from that desert planet agreeing to go with them. They would absolutely be trading up. Yeah, they they would do anything to get off of that planet. Yeah, also. yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're just we're just gonna quickly just like go through the movie and uh, break it down in more detail. Um, but we we do have that that opening at the very beginning. The movie actually starts on Nimbus Three uh, in the desert. And I, I gotta say, like, I remember, I actually remember, like, watching this the first time, and I thought, I mean, I didn't know what I was walking into here, but it was a kind of, like, an enticing opening. It really, like, grabbed my attention. You you have that, that cool shot of Cybok, uh riding up on a horse. It didn't feel Star Trek-ish at all, so I was very it looks, curious. It looks like Lawrence of Arabia, where yeah. he's all slow motion on a horse, like, <laughs> he looks like some epic leader or... You know, shaman, borderline pretentious, I would say, but um, <laughs> borderline. And, and then the I don't know if slow motion makes it pretentious. <laughs> when when the uh, the whole farmer sees uh you know Cybok uh, laugh and and it is like oh my god what's going on there's a there's a laughing Vulcan what could this mean? Uh, I, I thought he was a Romulan. See, I. I <laughs> That, that actually I think I knew makes it, more sense to think that. <laughs> I think at the time, though, I knew that like they're not gonna like show somebody with pointed ears without explaining it's a Romulan. They're gonna assume the audience will think it's Vulcan. <laughs> My only complaint with that beginning is that the the whole form farmer like seems like like a real guy who's just like incredibly desperate and um, like I believe like oh yeah this guy could be dangerous like like he looks like he's he's on like the verge of death. I don't I don't really know what he's he's looking for water I guess I don't know but then like he turns into like a uh, simpleton who kind of comes off as um, a little bit of like a special needs. <laughs> I don't think. Character. I don't think. I, I don't think his <laughs> desperation, his dangerous desperation, is necessarily in opposition to him being a simple no, guy. No, just just like his reaction to seeing like like Cybok smile, like um, yeah. that's more like I thought when I was watching. This I don't think anybody on that planet smiled. <laughs> it looked like a definitely looked like a, a wasted shithole. Well, he he smiled, and you see like his like meth mouth all like missing yeah. teeth. Do you know, do you know who he... that guy is, by the way? He was in like the original. Um, uh, what is it? Last not not Last House on the Left. Um, what's the Wes Craven mutants thing? Uh, the Hills. Oh, the Hills, Hills have eyes. eyes. Hills have eyes. Yeah, he was one of those mutants, and quasi reprised his mutant role in uh, Weird Science oh. mm-hmm. as the mutant bikers who show yeah. up. He looks like somebody, like, he. he it's, the movie starts out pretty strong, like, you've got the, like, some kind of Mad Max kind of thing going yeah. on, and you've oh, got Oh, I thought the, it was the gyrocopter for pilot from Mad Max, by yeah. the way. Yeah. <laughs> who's like a, well, uh, Bruce, whatever his name is, Turn, yeah. whatever his name is, uh, who's in all the, all the Mad Max stuff. Um, but yeah, you were saying... No, I was just, you've got this guy, he looks like he's gonna give you like a side quest in a Fallout game, and he's, <laughs> it's, it starts really cool, you got this slow motion horse, and then... I mean, I don't know what happens after that. Things kind of take a, a, a turn very <laughs> the, south. The but... horses are unicorns. Yeah. Oh. Which is yeah, they actually have like a horn on oh, their really? head. Yeah. They, they, How did I not notice? I, I did <laughs> like the revisionist idea of we'll make the ugliest, most desperate, de- most de- most uh, pathetic unicorn ever. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of like the idea, the creativity of. Um, they are unicorns, but they're also the like the ugliest blue horses you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that's as good as it gets on uh, on the planet. I mean, three. Yeah. The, the horses just come from Shatner being a big fan of horses, yeah. and he, he does like competitive riding and stuff. Yeah, um, and uh, if he actually like loves to talk about horses, if you ever talk to him in person, like he like he'll he'll go on about it all day. But they had to make it look like a space horse, so they 
Yes, that's how you end up with like a horse painted blue with a horn glued to its head. Yes. People who like horses don't just kind of like horses. Yes. Yeah. Those casual <laughs> horse fans yeah. out there. Yeah, so I'll say this. Yeah. One of the things I overall kind of like about the movie is that it's a little unpredictable at times. And a lot of that kind of comes from Cybok. And, and so as openers go, a lot of times you kind of establish the bad guy. They'll like go and kill a whole bunch of people or something so you know they mean business. I kind of like that this guy shows up and it looks like it's going to be some kind of violent clash or something like that. And instead... He's this kind of charismatic recruiter, really. Yeah. And I was like, that's that's pretty cool. Admittedly, the movie does take a hard <laughs> hard turn downward after that. But there, I do find that some of that spirit infuses a few other scenes and, and elevates them a little bit for me. I, I, I would actually say the movie is watchable right up until about the point where Kirk and, and Spock get captured by Cybok. See, and I, I still... would say that's about where we start going from a watchable well, film to something. I actually grim. think it breaks down a little bit before that, but no. let's, let's get. Well, I may be in opposition to that too when we get to that, but yeah, we can take yeah. it in order. Let's, let's get off of Nimbus three and talk about uh, Yosemite and like the like the camping right. stuff, the, the like, iconic guess, scene of the movie in the, a lot of ways, the rock climbing, the jet boots. Yes. <laughs> Man, those jet boots are cheesy as fuck. Yeah. There's no reason. There should be boots like that in the 23rd century. That's fair. We, the fact that we never see anything like that in Star Trek again is actually kind of annoys me. You, because you know they what, should have that. You know what that feels like to me, though? It feels like on Star Trek Discovery when they just like invent like a really weird technology that seems like so out of place and doesn't make sense. Like, here's some repair R2-D2s on the Enterprise and Discovery. See, I like that, too. I, I like the repair art. I, I don't like that. So, you just um, you just would not want them to be just thrown discarded. You're like, go and use it again. Yeah, and make well, it a thing. Yeah, I, I I kind of like the idea that these boots exist. Were they used in a reasonable way in this <laughs> film? No, <laughs> but I do think that that's something Starfleet should be able to cobble together as an easy way for their away teams to say fly up. Why can't we? Twenty third century. We you know what? That uh, out. You know what bugged me more about that scene was honestly Spock rather out of character. Uh, annoying the shit out of Kirk when he really did need to pay attention to things. You almost I'm killed like, him. <laughs> I'm like, it established that there will be some jokiness to this movie, and you know, as yeah. since Trek Three, we're getting progressively more kind of like jokey, familial quality whenever yeah. the lead big three together, and and also the uh, supporting cast. So it, it fit that, but. <laughs> Dude yeah. could have actually died. The, the, <laughs> as we're always going to go back to this well, the novelization actually has a rock breaking off in Kirk's hand, and that's what causes him to fall, because the novelist did not want Spock to be guilty of causing Kirk to fall. Yeah. So. <laughs> Interesting point is that Spock says that uh, the, the mountain, El Capitan's yeah. record, is in no danger of being broken. Yeah. But at the time this came out, no one had actually uh, climbed that. Huh. Um, mm-hmm. But someone has recently. Okay. Free climbed it. Free climbed it. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so there, Which, there is now a record of climbing it. All right. Y'all, uh, y'all buy Shatner uh, scaling mountains. <laughs> Shatner, no. What Kirk, sure. Why not? Yeah, exactly. Kirk climbs the mountains. Yeah. I, I have no. Yeah, doubt I didn't have any particular issue with it, yeah. but it is a little bit funny. <laughs> what, what do they call it when you climb it without uh, rope and stuff? That, that free climbing. Free climbing. Yes. Yeah. Or at least that's what they called it in the movie. So. And then Dr. McCoy watching, uh, they, they reuse a joke from the original series where he, he, he talks to himself about talking to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, where he, uh, in the, in the carbomite maneuver, he has the line, um, uh, if, if I jumped every time a light was flashing around here, I'd end up talking to myself. <laughs> something like that. Was, was that like a deliberate callback in any way or just? No, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, they, they are trying to really 
write a lot of gags and stuff. And there's another reason why I think the movie uh, disappointed was because it, it did get too campy. But Paramount wanted a comical Star Trek because Star Trek Four was so successful. And a lot of the gags are not funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say what you Wolf. want about stupid checkoff on the uh, the the Enterprise aircraft carrier. At least it's funny. <laughs> so. Do you want to talk about like stupid checkoff, like him and Sulu when they're walking around y- Yosemite yeah. and their little. Uh, we seem to be caught in a blizzard. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get, this is sort of a tradition that seems to go happen with a lot of movie franchises where characters that are really very competent become progressively more campy. Now, the one I, I'm thinking of right now is the Raiders or the Indiana Jones series, where like Marcus and Sala in the third one like are can't find their way out of uh, what, what, what town are they in? Uh, whatever, wherever yeah. they are, and they are just as lost as Chekhov and Sulu are in this. Yeah. And I'm like, man, and Marcus and like Sala were both on the ball in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and now they're doofuses. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's just we're like buddies with them now, and we kind of don't want it yeah. to be too serious. It also bugged me when Uhura says that the scanners show that it's 70 degrees. Because she should have been using Celsius instead of Fahrenheit. Well, that's stupid of you, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What do y'all think about like the B story of the movie? The the Klingon who's out there shooting space trash and decides he wants to be the one to to kill so, Kirk. So Captain Claw is uh, I like how wiry he is. He, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's like lame. always perpetually like this. He's, he's a very lame villain. Yes, he, he's he just comes off as like so like here's a generic default Klingon with no motivation except he's a bad guy and knows he's a bad guy and he's here to fight the good guys. <laughs> Yeah, his motivation's terrible. It it rises and falls with that. It it, kind of comes off... That's kind of how I feel about Darth Maul and the Phantom Menace. Mm. Um, Except that was presented better than this was. Well, yeah, Darth Maul is clearly supposed to be a a kind of dark threat in the shadows. We're not supposed to understand him. Claws... Yeah, there's no mystery there. Yeah, yeah. Um, And... this, I thought this was interesting because, like, I always assumed he was played by a a black guy or some some actor of, of color... But if you actually, like, look at him, like, outside the Klingon makeup in 1989, like, what do he look like? He is, like, a super blonde California beach boy. So they stayed true <laughs> like, to the 60s tradition. They kind of black-faced him. They, they did. Um, Brown-faced him. Yeah. But that's, I mean, most, most Klingons are played by Caucasian actors. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Christopher Lloyd, uh, very notably in the third one. Um, but they didn't brown they, they don't, face Lloyd quite yeah, they, the they same Yeah, they level. don't always, like, darken their skin like they did yeah. this guy. Yeah. Um, he he does look good. They 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 have, like, a pretty Klingon-ish looking Klingon, but there's, there's, like, zero depth there. He is by far, like, I don't really count him as, like, the main villain of this movie. I no. think Cybok is right. the main villain. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I get that they may not want to like invest that much in him because it, the more interesting stuff is happening. I think with Cybok and his quest, um, and um, but if you're going to have a side villain, they they should be more memorable. That's all. Yeah. They just yeah, for sure, drop the ball. Yeah, but our, our characters are recruited from from their their little camping trip. Their their marshmallow. Uh, roast is interrupted. Right. Let's before we talk about the recruitment though, mm-hmm. like that, that scene is pretty iconic of them. Sitting around shooting the breeze, Kirk saying that he's gonna he expects to die alone. It's kind of I always kind of oh, liked yeah. that bit. It's yeah. it's kind of melancholy and sentimental at the same time, but it, it sort of seems to fit him. I don't know what did you guys think. I, I, I like the camping scene. Yeah, I've always disliked the the um I I always knew I was gonna die alone type thing. 
It always you just don't think me. he would be a fatalist like that, or yeah, like, like, think he can see the future. Uh, I, like I have a hard time seeing like why someone would be like that convinced that they knew they were going to die alone, and I don't know. That just that in just a way it sounds silly. it sounds like a writer's convention, and, so that in the end they can come back to it and yeah. make you get that sense of full circle that writers always want. Yeah, but that's that is really artificial, it, right? I, 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 I liked it just because it was not what I was expecting Kirk to say, mm-hmm. and it's nice to see a side some, somebody in this movie do something unpredictable. Right. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I do think there is there's some something of a tradition of like you know with that whole captain going down with the ship. There, there's a certain kind of existential fatalist quality in ship captains and stories. It's it's kind of got a bit of a tradition, and it sounds like he's kind of tapping into that when he does it. So, so yeah, I, I kind of like it, even as I recognize, yeah, it's pretty artificial, too. Does he die alone? I mean, no, he's he got the like, card that, that, does, that doesn't even happen. That doesn't even... You yeah. know, you, you know, they, they bring it up in this one movie and then drop it. Yeah. Well, I, I guess he's not an actual prophet in that sense, <laughs> so that's probably okay. He's also Since, if guy, anything, this movie is about what? destroying he, spiritualism with Klingon disruptors. He, yeah. He's <laughs> also a guy who faces death regularly over the course of decades, and this is only a thing he talks about one time. Well, yeah, it's not the, the sort of thing he's going to bring up, though. Not, I mean, it's it, clearly a with as a, much as he's put in in danger, with as much yeah. as like he's had to face death. Like, I, I I agree. Like a lot of times, like like I'll give stuff a pass. I'll be like, well, yeah, they might have had that in a conversation off screen or something. I'm like, I'm like, no, I'm not buying it on the like he, you know, he he's sort of like convinced of it here. It's because he's getting older. Uh, I think I think he's meditating more works, on it kind of because of that. Uh, now uh, again. You know, you, they could have revealed that. He could have even said something. He's like, like, maybe, you know, I didn't used to think this way, but, you know, there, I, I've been having some darker thoughts lately, and I think I'm going to die alone. See, if he had said something like that, they would have had a kind of a little uh, context for it. Yeah. I, I think it was, in it a better talks. movie, right? I'm <laughs> going to die alone would have been one of the be- gems of that film. Mm-hmm. And I still think it's one of the unpolished, yeah. <laughs> very a, few unpolished gems know. embedded in this turd. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Think, I think Kirk ought to be a more rational guy and know better to know that like he can't like predict his death. Star Trek but... 3, they, uh, the Admiral says that his career stands for rationality, not... Uh, <laughs> and that's why he <laughs> waits until Star Trek 5 to mention this one bit of irra- irrationality. <laughs> yeah. He's clearly kept it hidden the whole time from his best friends. He has seen some stuff at that point. He's seen Spock's Katra go from one person to another. He's seen some crazy religious stuff. And you know what else bugs me? That, He's seen Resurrections. Yeah. In that, in that uh, campfire scene, is that bourbon and Tennessee whiskey are two different things. They should uh, know that. Uh, yeah, and, you, you, you have they, been making a pretty good case that McCoy doesn't know anything about alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in the original series, he calls a, uh, a mint julep a Georgia mint julep. But mint juleps are supposed to have bourbon, which comes from Kentucky. But maybe in the future, Kentucky and Georgia merge or something. Like, we don't know. Yeah, you should headcanon that for sure, Father. Yeah. But uh, also, like, the marshmallow. Like, how can you can have a guy say marshmallow with the N on it? That and was, not explain why he's saying that. Well, yeah, that was part of the deleted scene. I know, but yeah, you, you can't you can't leave that. Like, yeah, you gotta, like, to, redub that. Yeah, it does like, seem like that could have been redubbed. Get in the ADR booth for ten seconds <laughs> to say marshmallow. Yes. Marshmallow. Get two takes of it. Yeah. You know, I, I have this feeling that maybe they asked him, and he's like, no. I'm done with the movie. No, Shatner, you shit in the bed, you get to sit in it. <laughs> <laughs> you with your marshmallow Shatner. Yeah, marshmallow can, Shatner. He's shat in it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone watching this movie is kind of getting shat on. No. Uh, uh, certainly, by the way, this is just a small thing. Their like, wardrobe and hair, they, they've... Uh, off mic, we were talking about this a few days ago. Uh, 
everybody looks kind of bad in this. Yeah, this is like the first time where all the actors like really look old. But also Spock's haircut looks bad. He Kirk... looks like, Spock is a little pudgy. Like he, he this is the only <laughs> time where Leonard Nimoy doesn't look like skinny. He looks yeah. he looks a little little pudgy. Yeah, somehow, and I also think it's just like the lighting kind of has a cheaper quality that the sets obviously do. So we, we should talk about like on on the on the Enterprise when they they do come back up to the ship. Yep. And then we have this bugs me too is like the weird uh, relationship between Uhura and Scotty <laughs> that it just it's never been brought up before, and then here it's like very overt, and then it just gets dropped and goes away. That's, See, that's again, I I kind of like the idea of it. I think they should the fact that they don't run with it in Star Trek Six kind of kills it. But and makes it a problem rather than an asset. But mm. these people have clearly chosen to spend the rest of their lives together on this starship and not settle down and have families. So why would they not hook up? It, since this is the only people mm-hmm. that are going to understand the shit they've seen, the and and what they've been through. They keep we keep hyping that they're supposed to be families, and yet it's impossible that Scotty and O'Hara might flirt with each other. Now, this is only this. Are we only talking about the scene after um, Cybok had put the whammy on them? No, like no, no. when they when no, they first yeah. come up to the Enterprise, they're like they're being real no. flirty with each right, other. Right. He's yeah. working on something, and she comes over to him. Yeah, and yeah they, they talk about like spending, spending their their leave together. Right, right. Yeah. And um, I, I remember like Nichelle Nichols saying, uh, N- Nichelle Nichols saying in an interview uh, that when she saw the script, she like called James Doohan. She was like, "Oh my." Oh my god, Jimmy, this is so ridiculous. Like, can, can they believe that they think these characters would, would do this? But, uh, it's just kind of like laughing about it. But, yeah, so it's just like really awkward to just like drop on us. Uh, yeah. Like, like, there's, this movie is supposed to take place like immediately after the previous movie. Yeah. I don't know whose idea this was, but it, it, it the, the way that they, the way that they execute it is really awkward. And I don't even think it's like, I, I get, I get why y'all are saying like maybe, it could work, you know. These two characters known each other for a long time, but I don't know. I, it still it still feels awkward to me. I, if it was going to work, I needed it to like sell me on like why they would all of a sudden yeah. develop this chemistry. I, I, and there's no payoff at the end of the movie. Yeah. We don't see them right like on. arm in arm or something in the last scene. I think it was just kind of what they. The, I think the writers thought it'd be cute. So, That's about it. So and, there. By is, the way, they're they're on the bridge right when the call comes through, and they're like, "Red alert! There's hostages." Yeah. Whoever is on the bridge, make the cho- make the call or whatever, and recruit them. Like they don't necessarily send it to somebody who would be probably the obvious decision maker on these or in a, an at the admiralty. Or I guess they like tried that. to call Kirk, couldn't get a hold of Kirk. Figured Kirk must be on the Enterprise. We'll call the Enterprise. I yeah. mean, it makes a certain yeah. amount of sense. Yeah, because he said like he didn't take his communicator. And neither did. I just Spock. figured there's there's bases, <laughs> like there's big bases with like higher ups and stuff. I don't well, know. we get that we get that phone call between Admiral Bob and. Shatner and, and Kirk, which yeah. was he was played by the admiral was played by Harv Bennett. Oh, was his, his, that's right. His one uh, Trek cameo. It's the only time he, he cameoed, right? Uh, I believe so. Yes, and and you might want to explain a little about who Harv Bennett is. Just so, <laughs> yeah. So so Harv Bennett was uh, really the shepherd of of the Star Trek movies from Star Trek II un, until this one, yeah. and he's largely responsible. for for I think the the longevity of the franchise and why it didn't die after the motion picture sequel, um, he he was also uh, very responsible for the the stories that they were telling in Star Trek's uh, two and three and four, and has uh, writing credits on those. Um, with with Star Trek five, he was uh, trying to appease Shatner, 
and make sure that this movie you know does get made and does come out and um, sadly this was the last Star Trek movie that he was involved in because he he was a, a he did some really quality work and the franchise owes him a lot and I kind of feel like today he doesn't get enough appreciation but uh, this was this was the movie where he actually showed his face on screen and was his uh, his final one so it kind of sucks that this is what he this is what he went out on yeah. It's uh, his Raoul Julia Street Fighter moment. <laughs> but, uh, also, as we're talking about like the Enterprise, they like they take off to go on this mission. It really sucks to have another crippled Enterprise for no good reason. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Am I, is, uh, is this right? Six movies in a row of the Enterprise being in sub some some kind of substandard state. Well, I. Or five not, movies, five movies. Um, yeah, but that doesn't really happen in Star Trek Four because they're not really on the Enterprise until the end. But the Bird of Prey is crippled when the dilithium crystals right. are, yeah. are... Their ship um, is still after drained. Yes. But and it, whatever, whatever ship they're in, they wreck it. It, it <laughs> works every time. Like, I got some issues with the motion picture, but compared to this, that works. Like, yeah. this comes off as really weird, and it, it just feels like so... <laughs> it's like they decided it was a tradition at that point. <laughs> yeah. It's such a contrivance to, to say that you're the only ship in range. Even and, and you're the only ship who can go on this mission, and it, it has they, to be you, Kirk. They made but, one concession in saying that there were. I think they said there were other ships in range, but nobody who's got like no nobody who's you, Captain. Yeah. So then, we will but, send you on this ship wrecking <laughs> ship that doesn't even have a transporters or a proper crew. Rather than yeah. the Excelsior parked right next to your ship. Well, the, of course, yeah, we're not always known for rescuing hostages. Put Kirk on the Excelsior yeah. and send that ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but. It's like almost like they didn't think it all through. I mean, uh, yeah. And no. they tell Kirk, they tell Kirk, whatever you do, don't start a military incident. Don't get, you know. He hears, I'm going to open up a can of whoop And as soon as he arrives, shall we try negotiating? No, I'm going to take an away, uh, an away team down there. We're going to shoot them all in motherfuckers and bust our hostages out. Let's go. Yeah, because Shatner wanted to be an action hero. I know, but but why put the line in there, don't start a, mil-, you know, don't start a confrontation or whatever the line was, if you're just going to have Kirk completely ignore those orders right gotta, out of the gate I mean, without just you gotta, you gotta show he's a maverick like uh, I, I agree it's dumb but this is kind of this is kind of like Shatner's vanity piece also all the movie, all the Trek movies for better or worse they almost all try and portray the crew as mavericks well yes but and then it turns out to be the wrong thing to do Cybok right. was trying to avoid getting people killed and, and right. some people might have we don't know did all of those security people survive <laughs> did Kirk actually get some people killed by disobeying orders uh, I'll say this though like when we get the hostage video on the Enterprise that, that Cybok like makes to, to show them to, to get a ship to come and fall into his trap yeah um that's always come off to me as like very like well directed. The way that uh, Cyborg is like purposefully walking towards the camera, like giving his demands. It's a little more but, uh, handheld camera cinema verte than uh, you usually get. More yeah. like I guess more like a, sort of a not like a real hostage video, but a like it has the feeling of it that very similar. Yeah, I mean, yeah it I has the feeling that the, the director had no idea what they were doing when they shot that sequence. <laughs> it works perfectly. <laughs> I, I don't even think it feels like a real hostage video because I, I don't think right. you would actually do that. But it it, it, it does come off with like a, a, a some type of like authenticity to it. Yeah. Right. He has kind of a dra- dra- more dramatically mounting presence as, as he kind of wanders mm-hmm. towards the camera and stuff. And there are some good shots. Like, I love, like, when they're camping, like, the camera, like, pans over and you see, like, the owl in the foreground and then the the three of them camping in the background. There, like, so there's, like, some well-constructed shots. I don't know if it was... 
if it was a Shatner, if it was the director of photography right. working on this. But and we I, talked about the opening. Yeah, being it, it makes me wish this movie had a better script because I think there there could have been. There, there, I actually think been something the, good the germ of the idea uh, that of this, you know, of a sort of radical prophet uh, seeking God, and you know, and all of that stuff. Even though the barrier at the center of the universe is ridiculous, that's kind of within re- Trek ridiculous norms. <laughs> that's that's more ridiculous than Star. The, the fact that they can go. Well, they had like a barrier at the edge I, I, of the galaxy no, or whatever they, in the they, first episode. They've right? never, they've never like gone 24,000 light years in uh, an afternoon. Oh, yeah. yeah, That should have taken decades. Yeah. Right, but they could have... I I would say, I think they shot themselves in the foot with the quest for God. A messiah character who who rallies an army of refugees, captures the Enterprise on a quest for something else might have worked. I think there was no way to pay off the quest for God in a way that was going to work. You need something else at the end I actually kind of like how it plays out, to be honest. Uh, uh, You know, I don't think it's like a... Obviously, it could have been much better, but maybe it's because I like what the the message it's sending that that, uh, in in spiritual circles, you're very often going to find a manipulator at the top. Um, I feel like... Uh, yeah, but it's applied with, like, the, you, you, brunt, blunt force brick. I think the fact that he is sincere about it the whole time and he himself is not uh, not a villain is is, an, is what makes it interesting to me. Um, I, I like sort of Cybok's sincerity. And I his like fall, his sincerity. His, his I just want him to fallen. be chasing something better. Something See, more I think that's worthy of a movie. I, I think it's worthy of a movie and could have been, in better hands, a stronger thing. What I would have liked is if shockery didn't happen in, like, the middle of the movie. Like, we find out, oh, okay, now it's a quest for God. Like, maybe halfway through the movie is the first time we we, we get a sense that he's on a mission of some sort. Uh to my recollection, they don't really mention that he is specifically looking for this Eden God kind of thing specifically until we're pretty much halfway through the yeah, second it's, act. It's like, right. it's like the... Um... I mean, I think they did deliberately want his him to be kind of mysterious. You know, I, I could have seen like at the turn, of, like the end of the first act, or, or just where it's not just kind of awkward, where you're like, okay, we're doing something very different than what we were just doing, you know, ten minutes ago. It's we we do have this kind of radical religious guy. He's on this mission, and then it just kind of drops in the middle of the movie that this is now a movie about. It's just jarring to me. I don't know about y'all, but. He- Cybok comes off as as pretty cool in some of like the earlier stuff when he is more mysterious. Like like when they actually like capture the city uh, again. I, I think this was like pretty well shot. When you have like the 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 camera shows like all of the all, all these these raggedy guys like running up into the city, and you get like uh, then like it cuts to them like outside of the gates, and you have like the Paradise Lost on the. Oh right, right. On, on, the, the, wall, on, the, on the, I, I think, like walls. you were saying, if, if his mission was something better than finding God, I think I could have. I could. It's a great Star Trek mission. It's, it's, no, it's not. <laughs> well, that was that was Shatner's like original idea. And we was, already did that. It was called V'ger. <laughs> yeah, but that was disappointing. Too. <laughs> it was better than this. <laughs> there is a there is an episode of the original series about you know finding the way to Eden. Uh, I think it was called. The way to Eden. Oh, interesting. <laughs> oh. And it was a very similar story to this. You have like a, um, a a cultish type guy and his followers take over the Enterprise and they go to the promised land and it turns out to not be what they expected. Huh. And again, I thought the ending of that was the worst part of that episode because it was just like, oh, the apples are poisonous. 
Well, okay. the grass the grass has acid. The grass has acid. And Rob Zombie sampled that because he thought that was pretty cool. But, <laughs> um, it is hard to, to to pay off that kind of that kind of thing, um, but I feel like it's the kind of thing that shows like Trek can be good at, uh, you know, of using like big giant subject matter to talk about, you know, to talk about earthly. Well, problems. I mean, like, let's say we took the end. What's the uh, the 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 next generation episode where we discover that everyone's genetically related. Uh, oh, yeah, um, the, the 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 hunt, the chase, the, the chase, chase, yes, the chase. The chase. Okay. Um, what if we'd had that as Cybox quest at the end, and that was the punchline? That would have been end. cool. That would have been much better than what we got. What's the punchline to that? That we're all genetically all the, the Klingons, the Romulans, they're 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 humans. They're all. Come from a genetic, a, a central. I do think that would piece. be a more satisfying kind of final reveal type of story. Yeah, and maybe we don't even know quite what we're going to find until we get there. But right. this is the origin of humanity, or the origin of, of all life, or something. Stick with that instead of God, and then we have something we can actually say, "Oh wow, look, there is something here." There's this alien who has this hologram, and they explain, you know, use them together, use them in peace, and whatever. Well, and something. Let's, 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 I think the payoff is dropped kind of clumsily, I guess. Yeah, it, for sure. Yeah. Before we get into the, the end of the movie, though, let's talk about like Nimbus Three itself. It, with the actual, like, hostage situation and then, like, the rescue mission. And we have, like, the three ambassadors, and they're, like, they're being kept in this CD bar, which... Which is I, also the Capitol building. Is, yeah. It's, and <laughs> I sort of like that. I, I like that. I'm fine with that. <laughs> and someone thought it was a good idea to have a, uh, a, a cat stripper lady with three boobs. Then. I feel like the uh, her, her badly like uh, animated tail, which it looks like like I almost feel like you could see the string moving that mm-hmm. like ratty tail around. It looks like it was knocked together by like a high school drama department mm-hmm. in five minutes. <laughs> it's just really terrible looking. I, I love the pool that's actually played in a pool. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean that's oh. it's futuristic. I'm sure it's suspended oh. in in some sort of hollow liquid uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, but um, the the ambassadors themselves are all kind of. Somewhat ridiculous has beens. Uh, it's another David one of those Warner where... is totally wasted in this movie. Oh, yeah. um, absolutely. He'll, on, he'll uh, get another shot though. He'll get another shot. Saint, Saint John Talbot, yeah. which that's a, who the hell's name is Saint John? Is like <laughs> your first name? Is he like a space saint? Like what the hell? That's dumb. <laughs> the basic idea though of these of, of them sort of rallying the kind of the older out of step uh, you know burnouts at the end. I kind of like. It doesn't follow a strong. You know, thread or an arc that's that's really like set up earlier, but I still kind of like it. I, like, like it's another one of those in a better movie. The washout ambassadors kind of coming to you know showing their stuff a little bit at the and, end and, could have been better. And again, the novelization has, gives an arc to the ambassadors as a whole. Cord kind of gets sidelined a bit, but but builds them up to they are going to go back and they are going to fix Nimbus Three now that this is over. Cybok has fixed them. They've given them new life, new purpose. And even if their god wasn't down on that planet, we are going to go back and we are going to fix Nimbus Three together, the three of us. I do. And like that the was idea. really cool in the novel. Yeah, the- I, if you like this movie at all. Read the novelization because it's so much better a version of the same story. So, the 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 notion of the Romulans, the uh, Klingons, and the Federation trying to have like a little um, world where they could go to like have like peace conferences and negotiate and stuff like that, and then it just backfiring and turning into this this uh, 
Does, shithole. Doesn't David Warner say like, that they like how how was it there was a native population? The people there? no, the people we conned into coming here were they were the dregs of the galaxy. And the novelization right. expands and then it basically became like Australia, a prison colony where any you want to go to Rapente or oh, Nimbus three. Oh, I guess I'll take Nimbus three. Right. So <laughs> Uh, they've obviously got a great dental plan there. <laughs> well, when they uh, do their assault to go into Paradise City and mm-hmm. rescue the hostages, um, we get to see the the Marines on the shuttle, and they have the the cool assault phasers that I really like. Yep. And eventually, then, Sulu gets to uh, do a roll and uh, and fire with one of them that looks well, kind of cool. Well, yeah. Before we get into there, though, before they get into the city, they have to they have to rustle up some horses. Yep. And that, to me, kind of felt like, this is, like, silly Star Wars Western stuff. Uh, uh, Star but, Wars would not have had, uh, had had Leia get naked and dance in front of people to lure them off. It that, seems like there's so many easier ways to lure people than to get Ohura half-fucking-naked, dancing around with, like, feather things that she brought with her. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, well, I think there are, like... Palm leaves. Yeah, I think it was from, like, a tree the idea, that, at least in the novelization, is that's an oasis, a water pumping station that pumps water into the city, oh, okay. and there are some trees there because there's actually some water there. But you don't really see that on screen, and I don't know how much credit to give the novelist and how much the script the, for that mess. The Uhura fan dance is terrible, and yes. it's, it's one of the several things in this movie I find pretty unforgivable. Uh, Does anybody yeah, know but, behind the scenes? Like Nichelle Nichols was a dancer. Is that right? Well, she or was a singer. I mean, she might have done like some dancing on stage, but yeah. but she's she's known for like having like a, a good singing voice, right? And they actually uh, dubbed over her and got someone else to do the singing in this movie, which really pissed her off. Yeah, I was wondering, did she did she enjoy doing the scene? The actress, not Here's regardless her. of whether it works, did she have fun? I, I have no she, idea. I can't imagine. It seems like the kind of thing that could have been one of those like just so so different that she, you know, like like mm-hmm. I would hear it read about like. Next generation actors liking to any sort of scenes that were off the bridge, that were outside in natural environments, because it was just kind of liberating and it was fresher air and all yeah. this. So I was like, eh, maybe she had fun. Maybe she's know. like, oh, I like to dance. This is a kind of campy scene, but I still got to dance. And just like watching this as a kid, uh, you know, the first time I saw this, I was eight, and like, like at that age, like anything interesting fetish time to develop. No, like, like, like. <laughs> Anything sexual with like people like over fifty is just like totally disgusting. <laughs> and that was like the? really like just like grossed me out. I was like, oh my god, she is way too old to be doing this. I was like, you know, like like fuck this, like fuck these guys that are like aroused by her. They're like running up the sand dune, being like, damn, she naked. <laughs> like like fuck all of that. I hate that. Maybe it's that dumb. is the most telling quality of what life is like on Nimbus Three. <laughs> if they yeah. see that and they're like, oh my god, not 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 to, not. To to be ageist, not to be ageist. There, there's a this, lovely you, woman. You're describing young fathery, fathery not your mature self who would jerk off to it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, uh, yeah, fine. That's, that's what I'm doing uh, later do when it. we're done recording this. Uh, by the way, I wanted to say, I, the, the one character who I think kind of made out really well in that scene and who kind of seems to be sort of taken this seriously is Chekhov. Mm-hmm. Yes. He got to run the, run the ship and actually takes it scene pretty seriously and kind of has some of the more reined in acting in a very overacted movie. Yeah, he he is distracting Cybok. He is uh That's a good scene. He's yeah. he's playing the the ship captain trying to negotiate with Cybok to 
They take a bet that this Vulcan who was raised on Vulcan can't recognize that he's wearing commander bars and not captain bars. <laughs> well, the Starfleet uniform changes so often. That... <laughs> yeah, at that point, it had been around for a few years. but <laughs> And oh. if it was a human or something, fine, but it's a Vulcan. They're pretty good at those little details. <laughs> It would have been cool if they had you if that had been like something that he saw through that they were like we got to do this ruse quick. Yeah. It is the kind of like minor continuity that generally speaking big actiony type movies just pave over small details like yeah. that. But it would have been kind of cool to show off Cybox intelligence and have him yeah. say like uh, I, well, he, I just he knows want to put check off in a in a white collar and a and a, and a white stripe in the captain's bar. Yeah. You know, sell well, it. If we're we're really going to make this work, <laughs> but when they they're uh, breaching the city walls. I like seeing the uh, what you were mentioning earlier with Sulu, mm-hmm. with his cool little action beat he gets, and he yep. takes out that light. The assault phasers have blue beams, which I love, and uh, I, I kind of enjoyed that right up until the moment when Spock says, "Hold your horse, Captain." Ooh. And like, like. I was fine with that one. Or because, because Spock, I could easily see Spock saying that without realizing he's making some sort of joke. So That is cool when he nerve pinches the horse, though. Yeah. I like that. Do yeah. you really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's interesting. <laughs> Why, do, you, do you not like that? No, that's hokey as hell. <laughs> Vulcan nerve pinch, I, I don't have a problem with it working on... We've seen it work on a variety of species. The whole film franchise needs about, more nerve pinches. Do you think about like, how many different <laughs> aliens there are in Star Trek? Like It works yeah. on a... a Variety of, of creatures. I assume, I, I feel like it's he's like trained up on hominid type creatures, and then, but not. I, I will say, in my role playing game, training. when you use nerve pinch on an alien that's d- different from st- stock humanoid, <laughs> there's a hefty modifier for making that roll. <laughs> so, but I could also believe Spock could make it. He rolled Father, you know the big creature 20. that chased after him on the ice planet in Trek 09? Yeah, you should have like old <laughs> Nimoy. Like 80 you gotta like Nimoy. grab it like around the neck like this. <laughs> like he like flips up there, like. Uh, takes his. Jet like um, Legolas, like no, like CGI Christopher Lee in Attack of the Clones. Like, if you, like, you want to see like a cartoon senior citizen flipping through the air like a superhero? That's what Trek 09 needed. CG old man Spock, nerve pinching oh. a giant CGI. But, but but speaking of fighting like strange space creatures, anyone who is frustrated with the three-breasted cat lady, you get to watch Shatner. Uh, Possibly like murder her. It's <laughs> kind of weird. oh yeah, like she falls in a tank of water and seems yeah, to be unconscious. He's just gonna let her drown in there. Yeah, I guess yeah. it's a little disturbing, and then just like walks away, and she's just floating. Yep. <laughs> yeah, she committed a murder right yeah, there. Well, uh, but yeah, the, then you know, it turns out the hostages have been they've been drinking the Cybok Kool Aid. Yep. So Cybok uh, attempts to to capture the Enterprise. They're flying up to the ship, and. This is another thing that, that bugs me is that uh, Chekhov gets a little too comfortable in his his role as as the acting captain because he starts giving like Scotty orders. Well, like, no, like Scotty outranks Chekhov. He's always like gotten command of the Enterprise uh, before Chekhov. Like yeah, he's, he's, that, that was really weird. Clearly, the second officer of when, the ship. When Chekhov when Chekhov tells Scotty like like no like uh, keep the shields up like we can't risk letting the shuttle land. Yeah. Uh, why do, do, is there any stated reason why Scotty didn't get command of the ship? Um, because they wanted to give Walter Koenig that that scene, like negotiating with Cybok. All right. So only. Uh, uh, why, why did they want to give it to him? Out of curiosity, why not have Scotty be the guy? I don't know because they, they they were gi- they were giving uh, James Duhon the um, flirty relationship with Uhura. <laughs> and... Busy. When you got a scene that good, you don't get, to get <laughs> you, any we're other scene. Because because. 
Duhan was slightly higher on Shatner's shit list than Cody <laughs> was true. when the script was written. That's, That's his only list is a shit um, list. Yeah, it's well, just... I, I actually, like outside of Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, I think Walter Koenig um, hated Shatner the least mm-hmm. out of these actors and got along with him uh, the the best. Uh, but an, uh, one thing that I've heard is that Shatner was kind of oblivious that people disliked him um, and, and thought he was a jerk. And he found out about it, like, in this movie. And so he was trying to be nicer to these people. Koenig did notice that. He, he went in, oh, God, Shatner's going to be directing me. This is going to be so bad. I'm going to hate it. I'm gonna... Oh, he's so nice and supportive and friendly. And it was, was a one, of, it's my, one of my most wonderful experiences in all of Star Trek. You know, yeah. he, he, he was very open about how wrong he was about how ba- what it would be like to be directed by Shatner. backstory. So, Might be more interesting than the actual story. <laughs> um, so, so shall we jump to Cybok's takeover of the ship? Yeah, and the the uh, the shuttle shooting in there, and it's like a cartoon uh, yeah. shuttlecraft. <laughs> but they, they they get on board, and uh, Cybok has like that fight with Kirk, where they're like tussling in the shuttle bay. And I do like that they actually remember in this movie that Vulcans are stronger than humans, because that is so often forgotten. Yes. Um, but then you have Spock has the gun, and he has it like pressed up the Cybok's chest, and Kirk is yelling, "Shoot him!" And Spock doesn't do it, and that. Is kind of weird because see, see, I like the idea of that scene, but the execution just makes it feel wrong. It should well, be a huge moment, like why didn't Spock shoot? Mm-hmm. And instead, it comes off as what's going on. I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> like shot him in the leg before Cybok like walked up there and pressed his chest against the gun. And even then, like we know, Vulcans don't have their hearts in their chest from the original series. Yeah. So I think he's still like the novelization fixes that. He aims at the liver, but. <laughs> <laughs> I would say if they if they had had him like try to take a leg shot and then get blocked by Cybok who was close enough at that point or something. That said, it did lead to a scene I liked where Kirk is chewing him out and McCoy in a weird case stands up for Spock and yeah. said, "Hey, that that literally is his brother. He could not shoot him." Yeah. Uh, it seems like that because I think McCoy would think that yeah. way. But we get we get the our our three main heroes in the brig. We get the reveal that Cybok is another son of Sarek. Um. Scotty, here's why Scotty... Who's supposed to be the mother of Sarek and the... Uh, like a Vulcan a, princess. Oh, that's right. They the, did the mention mother that. of Cybok. Yes. Which is stupid that there's a monarchy on Vulcan. Yeah. Do the, they, like... The his, novelist again changes that to priestess instead of Was princess. it supposed to be before his marriage to Amanda? Yes. Current with? Is he Polly? What's the uh, no, uh, Before, I think is... Uh, okay. I, I think they state that in the movie. They certainly make it very clear in the novel. Because... Uh, she decided to go off and do Kolinar or whatever, and so that was the end of that marriage. So, uh, but Scotty gets his cool moment here, I guess. When he does like the, uh, "What are you standing around for? Don't you know a jailbreak when you see one?" Yeah, because yeah. there were no guards on that cell. He couldn't just walk in the door and hit the button and open the little thing. It's much cooler to blow a hole in a wall. (laughs) Sometimes I will give the movies that that it's just cooler. I mean, they took over the whole ship with like seven people. It's kind of doofy how they're translating the Morse code and they're like real obvious about it. It's like, get... No, it's stand back. A C what? Stand that's, That's the... Almost every line in this movie is a bit of a cliche, a line you have heard before in other yeah. films. And that's, once you start looking for it, you're like, I've heard that line, but I've heard, there's no, almost no lines that you <laughs> haven't heard a dozens of times before in other movies. Um, and 
this is why McCoy is the only actor who I think works is because McCoy is kind of always spoken in cliches. Mm-hmm. That's kind of his default setting is to grumble cliches. So he can, he makes it work, but everyone else talking in cliches just sucks the life out of the scene. Well, speaking of McCoy, I think this is the, the, the central, it, like his, some of the best acting I, weirdly, I think DeForest Kelly has done is when Cybok sort of opens him up. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, and maybe the best scene we, in the movie. Yeah, we should yes. think so. Just b- before we jump in on that, I do have to say that Scotty was so cool right until he uh, walked into that that bar on, across the ceiling and knocked himself out like a baboon. Yeah, well, that was terrible. Um, Shatter yeah. didn't want Doohan looking too cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So then after that, they go into that really cool set there. I guess like the Enterprise A's version of the ten forward. Yeah, which is in like the front of the saucer, and there was actually a reuse of the Next Generation. Ten forward set. They they use a lot of next generation sets in this movie. I, don't think, that show that, I think that was a new set. It certainly uh, the I, shape, the floor plan is very different. Anyway, I thought they like they built that inside of like the ten forward. In fact, set. I don't think yeah. ten forward did ten forward exist. Yes, that was in season two. Okay, so yeah. but yeah, it looks really different. The windows are different. The walls are different. The location of the door is different. I mean, I don't know what they kept if that's supposed to be ten forward, but. I don't know. You might you might be right, but yeah. I I think I've read that that was that was like built in uh, part of a, the ten forward set, inspired um, by I can easily see, but but that might be it. Yeah, but that, that's a, a really cool room. Their their observation lounge that has that uh, has that chip wheel that says where no man has gone before, which yeah. is the. Well, I take that back. I was going to say that's the last time someone says where no man has gone before in Star Trek. And without, before it becomes where no before, one has but, gone. Yeah, mm-hmm. and no one had already been introduced on TNG. But right. They, they, well, Zephyrin Cochran brings it back on Enterprise with, with yeah. man instead of one. But mm. um, then, then uh, Cybot comes in there, and we have like the moments where he makes each one of the uh, characters... Where he attempts to make each one of them like face their pain and, and drink right. the cyborg. When they get on board, he's already kind of put the whammy on Sulu and like Uhura and Chekhov is like, "What's going on?" <laughs> but uh, this is the this is the only time, other than the opening sequence, where we kind of see him do his thing. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is this is yeah by far like I like best. how they did it where they pan over as if the vision that the, the memory that McCoy is having almost as if it's occurring in the room. Yeah, and it does mm-hmm. seem as if Spock and Kirk experience it with him at least yes, on some yes. psychic level yes. yeah I, I think i think that's obviously conveyed yeah um but the uh tonal shift there gets like so dark and so serious yeah it is a little jarring uh but again since this is like some of the, like the yeah, best well, stuff the movie, in the movie it, shitty, it shitty, shitty. oh my god this yeah, seems yeah. good yeah it's yeah. jarring but so in a good this way. is where we find out that mccoy uh, like, helped to uh, euthanize his father from his painful terminal illness only to have it cured uh, within months. And, and the, the line there, re, re, like, how do you write that? What do you have a character say? Like, you can't be like, let me die, son, or kill me. Like, like, what do you write that sounds good? And they simply have the line, release me. Yeah. yeah. And the actor who plays the father delivered it so well and DeForest Kelly's reaction to it. And it kind of, like, explains, like, why this, like, what kind of pain does this guy have? Why he's always, like, so cantankerous and grumpy. And, yeah. Um, and, yeah. Like, it, it all works so well. Yeah, and he's still he, he's the compassionate doctor, which is at, at the core of that character. Yeah, and the the scene also has like an int- the interesting thing that follows that where um, Kirk talks about his need to hold on to well, his. Before pain. we, we got to talk to Spock before Kirk. Yeah. All right, but uh, yeah, with Spock it was obviously going to be daddy issues. Yep, 
And that actor who plays young Sarek looks so much like him. The way that, like, they shot that without... We don't see, like, a good look at his eyes. They keep, like, his eyes in the shadows. But he looks how Sarek looked when he played the Romulan commander in Balance of Terror. Mm -hmm. And they actually got Mark Leonard to dub over the voice when he looks at the baby and says, so human. Yeah. And so, like, that that sells Sarek so much that... It's awkward to watch that and then go back to Star Trek Discovery and see James Brain <laughs> yeah. not be nearly as Sarek the as very, this guy was. Yeah. The very warm Sarek of oh. Discovery. Yeah. Well, it's just it's just the uh, like this guy feels so much like Mark Leonard. Yeah, but um, that, I, 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 think I James would Brain argue that that the, the 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 Spock scene, the the Spock vision, the Spock pain share. Probably work. I think it works great if you're a Star Trek fan. I do wonder how well it would work for the casual audience. But in a movie yeah. like this, I'll just take whatever gem I can get, yeah. regardless of whether or not it was a, a wise move. Commercial but I, move. I do wish that Spock's reaction to that would be where he says, uh, "Cybok, this isn't going to work on me. Uh, I guess you didn't see the last movie, but me and Dad worked things out." So yeah. I'm I'm over this. I've moved past this. Well, because the movie's about Kirk and not about Spock. Right. Even though Cybok is Spock's brother, and you think that would make it about Spock, yeah. but it and doesn't. It, because and they Kirk. don't they don't always spend the time to put that much yeah. continuity into the stuff. But yeah. for me, I would have enjoyed that more. But yeah, but then we have Kirk. Yeah, no, that that would have definitely kicked it up a notch. We have Kirk say he's not going to face his pain. He needs his pain. And I actually like always liked this. Like as a kid, like I always thought that was super cool. I think it's a very Kirk thing to do. I also think that some of the stumbling he does in Star Trek VI is because he didn't go through that process. Uh, I think if there's one thing Star Trek VI or Star Trek V uses a, could be seen as connective tissue to VI and three that exists in this movie, it is that moment where where, where Kirk does not let go of his pain. Because we're assuming that pain would be the death of his son, David. Yeah, and the novelization mm-hmm. makes that explicit, but... But uh, yes, and and I I I think that that makes the scene even better for me. Is that I, why I dislike that because I don't I don't think that like drinking the Cybok Kool Aid should be seen as like uh, a positive experience. Well, um, I guess I, admittedly again I'm colored by the novelization, which actually explains how it works. What it is is it takes you to the deepest, darkest, most guilt-ridden part of your life in the novel, anyway. And it says, no, you're still a good person. You still have value. You still are worthwhile. You you deserve to exist. You deserve to be whole. It's the kind of thing that a, a, a real uh, therapist would take months or years or decades teaching well, you, and yeah, somehow yeah. he can do it all at once. Mm-hmm. Yes. Theoretically, he, if it... Though Cybok abuses it horribly uh, in, a, in a way that no, no proper psychologist ever would <laughs> to manipulate people, but I can tell you firsthand knowledge that those experiences are incredibly profound and create an intensely strong bond with the person that you share them with. So I totally buy that it could be a very therapeutic thing. And then Cybok twists it and said, now I want you to do this for me. And that's where the thing, it becomes bad. But uh, yeah, so I don't see the Cybok Kool-Aid inherently. In a lot bad. of ways, he never. it seems like he wasn't really giving them too much agency in, dis- in deciding what, how they wanted to deal with no, it. He was no. like, I will pluck this pain from yeah. you and uh, I, I'm telling you you're going yeah, to be a better yeah. person for it. Yes. And you just kind of got to roll with it. Yeah. I, I think, in, again, in a more nuanced movie, they could have had some a few discussions about this. Think parts of it that might be good, yeah. parts of it that are very clearly terrible. Yeah, <laughs> but I yeah. love I love Kirk being a guy who's like I don't need that. Like no. I know who it I am. Super I know, Kirk. I know yeah. what I've done. That is but Kirk. 
I, I, now that I'm talking about this, like, this might sound a little silly, but I think I might have actually, like, Kid Father, he might have actually been influenced by this movie. Mm. Maybe if that was, like, the one positive thing I took out of this. Because I feel like now, if I came face to face with this, I'd be like, like, no, like, I got my shit together. Like, I, I know, like, where I've messed up before. Like, I don't, I don't need that erased. Like, if well, anything, I've, I've Star learned Trek to learn from that. doesn't. Yeah, but that's well, the, you're the movies assumptions. To, the movies have to um, act to be judged kind of on their own yeah. because of how they make them. I get. I, I, I mean, in the interest of finding something good in five, six <laughs> makes five more. This part of five more interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think I think that that's a well taken point. That it seems like uh, some of Kirk's weaknesses are 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 because of that, or, or like he at least acts the way he does because he couldn't. Find it in his heart to forgive yeah. himself. I, I like I like to believe that he's he's the guy who like actually did have like a handle on on his pain. Um, I mean, but, arguably, he still does do the right thing in six too. Yes, so. but he also says, "Let them die." It's a more circuitous way, yeah. <laughs> but maybe more honest. Yeah, I, yeah, I have something else to add to that, but we we will talk about that in next week's podcast when yeah. we get to Star Trek Six. Uh, but y'all want to talk about the the actual like. Finding of to, God to uh, Shockery and how somehow they managed to get their ship to go so fucking fast that it, it went uh, uh, on a course that would take the starship Voyager um, twenty four years to go. They did it. In seven it's funny hours that's kind of, that's the kind of thing that I, I don't really care about in the movies because they so routinely ignore everything that they do. They on have the, already the gone to the center of the universe in the cartoon series, but yeah. and they found a godlike entity. Well, they there. found the devil there. Yeah. They what was the... it uh, that Gary Mitchell got his powers? What were they trying to breach? That was the barrier to get out of the galaxy. To get yes. out of the galaxy. Yeah. But no, the movies have never done anything this fucking stupid before or since. Where you, you go that far? That fast. I tend to I tend to judge them uh, more on story than on than on technical issues. You know, than on their the hardness of their sci-fi. I was more bugged by the fact that the Great Barrier turns out to be a nothing, and so what? All those probes didn't believe have faith. No probe has ever returned. Yeah, and, and we know now that like the center of the galaxy is actually like a big black hole, right? So none of this uh, yeah. makes sense with like. Uh, you, know, you could argue science. the black hole is a prison, but but I also don't think you can dock a movie that's always uh, you know a series that's not never been hard science with not having guessed what science would be like in 2019. <laughs> yeah, well, mm-hmm. they kind of knew that the they suspected yeah. a black hole at the center of the Milky Way yeah. by the time this. Movie I mean, you know. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Nebulas don't work the way they worked in Wrath of Khan, and they knew that when they made Wrath of Khan. Yeah, and it's still super badass, and I forgive them because it's a cool. That scene. was a nebula. You can't have an alternative center of the galaxy. That's like an actual like specific thing. Ne- nebulas are specific things too. Yeah. they don't function even remotely like they did in in that one. I, I just ne- to me, nebula, it's all a the same. Is just a cloud of particles. Like it could. There, there's there's more leeway there. Yeah, but I, I they, they span like millions yeah. of like miles. We don't know how big the Matari Nebula yeah. was. I, I will say I think the center of the galaxy thing is a bigger gaff than the Matari Nebula. Sure, sure. But but uh, it, it was it's the farthest thing from my problem. With if the they movie, had yeah, got yeah, everything else right in the movie, we wouldn't give a shit about the fact that they exactly. went to the meta- center of the universe. Well, we should talk about like when they actually come face to face with the god creature. Yep. Um, it's a scene that here's here, here I'm gonna just jump in and say I like the scene uh, on the basis of like if it feels like something that could have happened uh, in a Star Trek episode mm-hmm. uh, and I and I think it works kind of on that small level it doesn't function on the big level it needs to to be a really satisfying movie experience but I still kind of like it I like the slow burn anger of the god 
and Cybok uh, fall from like enthusiasm to crestfallen. I do like like Cybok uh, doing his, his last minute redemption there. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I think Cybok is actually you know one of the best uh, Star Trek movie villains. He's the, the most unique. I yeah. did. I did like. So this, this was one of the other big things that why, why I kind of like the ending of the movie is because uh, he does the unusual thing of like not uh, of like. Hey, you know, I'm giving you control of the ship back. I'm giving you, you know, letting you have complete power over me. I think you need to see this as much as I do. I don't know if I 100% buy that Kirk would go along with it and not just throw him in the brig. But uh, but as as far as, like, being an unusual villain turn, it's pretty interesting. But I'm going to disagree with you that the climax works because I think it is so, it's so anticlimactic to see that there's nothing at Shockery except for, like, uh, some uh, some desert... Uh, shot with a purple filter on a camera. Yeah, it's, it feels small, so, and that's why I liken it to the TV series. And at this point, like they had no, they were supposed to be like rock monsters and cool shit. But they, you know, you know the line that everybody remembers is, of course, uh, the what, what, what does God need with the starship? Right. Mm-hmm. And people make fun right. of that, but I actually like that because that's that's what Kirk should say in that situation. Right. And I also I, like I like what precedes it. It's it's like in a way it's Kirk as every kid in Sunday school, anybody who ever asked a question and got his a ruler smack on the knuckles, his uh pardon me or whatever does he say excuse me or pardon me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like here's a guy communing with God seemingly and he's like, Whoa. Uh and that's a feels very Kirk to me too. Yeah. Uh, is that you should be able to be a que- you should question yeah. anything. I, I think the characters perform the scene well. It's just not the scene that should be. We needed something better than that scene to pay off this movie. I can agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yes, that's Kirk. Yes, that's Spock. Yes, that's McCoy. They're doing their thing, and even Cybok is doing his thing. But this is not the scene that wraps it up. Trent, yeah. what did you think of the the ending? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I um, I think that, like there's a version of it that was definitely better. Um, I. You know, right after that, you know, the, what does God need with the starship? And then the, it's just followed up with, uh, what is it? The, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. I it's, hate that. Like, Dr. McCoy has never been portrayed as, like, a religious guy before. Like, he even calls, like, uh, the Bible creation story myth in Star Trek 2. Yeah. Mm. So I hate him here being, like, a little bit of God-fearing. I, 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 it's kind of a betrayal yeah. of the character. His inner southerner it came out. It could have been a, 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 <laughs> Way to warn Kirk that maybe this guy's going to kill us all if you don't. Yeah, keep, I, I think it always. Him off. I think it worked yeah, for me with, on that level you. of that was just how he phrased it. Uh, you know, yeah. kind of maybe having grow, grown up with some Southern traditions or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, when they when they fire a photon at God, um, is it the old school photon sound effect? I, believe. I don't think so, but there are some. It sounded old school, very close to it. There's some old school sound like TOS. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, we, we, we can double check because I'm curious now. But there are some old school sound effects when they're back on the shuttle. And I, I, I gotta say, the sound effects of this movie are actually really good. Like when, like when God uh, like is shot and then like he disappears, but like you hear like that howl where he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. like it's kind of like creepy. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I get kind of scared for Kirk, uh, but. Yeah, it's just I don't know. Like the the whole threat of the villain kind of seems not that menacing when they they do like dispatch him pretty easily. Like like sure. the, the Enterprise and a bird of prey shoot at him a couple times and he's seemingly gone, <laughs> or at least like no longer a threat. Yes, with a little bit of explanation, and I, I imagine the novel probably got into this in some way about him having been you know lost power from having been imprisoned there. 
and that the uh, shot that takes him out from the Klingon ship is, you know, uh, it's, it's ridiculous who the gunner is. <laughs> it's, it's like the dumbest thing ever. But like, you know, if they were like, well, we need somebody who can compute, you know, like really at high, at, in real time, you know, the weak spots uh, on him. None of that was in the novel, yeah, by the way. That, just for what? For the. But that is did, cool. did Spock till, still make the shot? Yes, Spock makes the shot. If everything that happens in the movie happens in the novel, it's just sometimes tweaked huh. a little. I would have thought they would have mentioned something with that. I, I don't like, think. Yeah. I do like when Spock tells General Cord or Ambassador Cord that like you got to try to get a hold of this Klingon, and he, he says, uh, "Damn it, sir, you will try." Yeah. He, like, remembered how to curse from Star Trek Four. Yeah. And he's gotten pretty good at it. Yeah. Um, you know, I noticed there's a lot of goddams in this movie. Uh, like, they say it, like, three or four times over the course of the movie. It was just kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know whether that was intentional, since they're going to have an evil god in it, or just the particular manner of swearing that happened to get through then. And then the, the Peter David comic adaptation that DC put out... Mm-hmm. Um, when, when they, they're on Nimbus 3 on, like, the, uh, attack on Paradise City, um, so, like, one of the, one of Cybok's guys says to Spock something like, oh, I'll kill you all, and Spock says, uh, the hell you will, and does, like, <laughs> he, he, like, nerve pinches them or something like that, but, um, yeah, and then, and on that Bird of Prey, we get that super stupid, uh, forced apology from, from Captain Claw. Yeah. He, he's, he's... He's acting like a little kid in trouble. His, his <laughs> mom is like, now say you're sorry. but uh, Yeah, just in case you didn't think he was the stupidest Star Trek villain ever, mm. we're going to give him a scene where he looks even worse. <laughs> uh, quick opinions on a, a line that I think is hokey but still makes me laugh. The, sir, please, not in front of the Klingons. Oh, yeah. It works. <laughs> I, I, I think if they drop the apology, you can kind of get away with the hug, though you still need to rationalize why Spock's even there. Yeah. But, um... And- one last, like, dumb thing I gotta call out on this was when they're all drinking and celebrating and Scotty's like, I never thought I'd be drinking with a Klingon. It's like, you were at a bar with Klingons and the trouble with Tribbles, fool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, uh, the, but he was he was drinking very grudgingly there and here we presume At a different table. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, oh, and Sulu was, uh, he, he was getting, um, uh, he, he had his eyes on what was her name? Vixus. Vixus. Yeah, the the Klingon woman. So uh, Sulu of the Prime Timeline. Um, I I think I think Sulu is just a bisexual. That's yeah, what that's I like. what I would say. Uh, Can I just say maybe what if he was just admiring her outfit? Oh, just a like, thought. Just a they thought. were actually well, admiring her muscles. That's they were honest. It wasn't. It was. It wasn't about. <laughs> yeah, that's them. what he said. Right. That that's just what Chekhov says. But yeah, wonderful out. muscles. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they read Playboy for the for the articles. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, the ending, you get a kind of sweet scene of the recurrence of the campfire thing. Row, um, row, row your boat. Yeah. yeah. Which would have been a great bookend for for a better movie. <laughs> um, what if this had been the end of the film series and we didn't see the TOS people again after this? That would have been disappointing. If, yeah, if that I would, that I, I would have to go buy some novels that had a better ending. The, hip, the, the sort of hippie wisdom of like maybe God is in here uh, would have would have been pretty rough as the ending <laughs> to Star Trek. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's it's as a scene of three longtime friends uh, enjoying their company. It's it's sweet. Um, I know my, my sister-in-law has a big fondness for this movie. Uh, she's kind of a, a, a serious Star Trek fan, but like in, in a, in a more casual way where the character relationships are like the main thing she tunes in for. Um, and so I think, I think this has actually always been 
a movie she liked a little bit more as a result of that than most people. As a more like casual fan, yeah. though, like exactly. And she doesn't like read memory alpha articles yeah. or like look at star charts. Probably or not. No. Any of that. I will say there's one thing this movie might do better than any other. Certainly, it's in the top echelon. I think it has the best soundtrack or the second best soundtrack of any Star Trek we, movie. Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith's score does do a lot of the heavy lifting in this movie. Well, he can't lift it. It's like lifting <laughs> diarrhea just slips through your fingers. But the soundtrack divorced from the movie is gorgeous. Yeah. I well, love that scenes, soundtrack. A lot of these scenes play better with that music. It's certainly like, whatever when, help you can get, it when, gives it. When but. they reach Shockery and they're like, they're really just like walking up a hill and then they walk down a hill. Yeah. And uh, everything is purple because there is a uh, filter on the camera. Uh, but because you have that score, it does feel a little bit more special than yes. what it actually is. Yeah. There's that's... a scene early on. I, I don't know if it's like when he takes over on uh, Nimbus 3 or, or, or like shows up with the armed guards and st- or, you know, with his followers. Where the, there's like this kind of cool tribal drum music. And I was like, oh man, that's a little almost call back to his old Planet of the Apes soundtrack. Oh, yeah. It's not a big part of the whole movie, but it was it was just right in that moment, and I was like, oh, that was cool. And his Klingon score from the motion picture makes a return. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I think we do need to wrap it up though. Uh, but um, we did we did get some responses on on social media on this movie. So, uh, Dave, what what do we have in the, our subspace transmissions? First up, we've got from Facebook a comment from a frequent commenter Adam B. Owen. Hi, Adam. Says the scene with Dr. McCoy and his father is priceless, one of the best scenes in all of Trek. I think some of its failings come from its budget being cut, and of course Shatner not exactly loving the franchise at that point in his life, or the role of director. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably true. Yeah, he, he was more interested in making a, uh, a hero goes to face God movie than a uh, another chapter in the in the Star Trek saga. I'm going to jump over to Twitter here. Uh, I don't, I can't read the full name of this because I'm just looking at a screenshot of it, but this is from an unofficial Hugo Award something dot dot dot. He writes, he or she writes, the fan scene. That's the worst moment. <laughs> but also, the planet of galactic peace is a premise with a lot of promise, uh, but it's dealt with so shoddily. <laughs> they introduce the three ambassadors and do nothing with those characters. It's a frustrating movie filled with awful moments. <laughs> Uh, I have done a lot with Nimbus 3 in my role-playing game. That, that, there's a lot of meat there. Every once in a while, like, a bad movie can be mined by either, I mean, I guess, uh, in, in the world of fan fiction or the world of role-playing yeah, games yeah. or anything, where it's something where fan creativity can kind of try and ha- take a shot at yeah, it. Or yeah. even some like the official release novels can... can... I, know, I know David Mack used Nimbus 3 in one of his Vanguard books, so... Uh, let's see, uh, here's another, uh, Twitter, Twitter name that I cannot quite read, uh, Star Trek versus Star Wars.net, something like that. SD versus SW.net, I guess. Who writes, uh, Star Trek V has plot issues, execution problems, continuity and Trek tech problems, and so on, yet it's not nearly so bad as is claimed. It's a darn good TOS season three episode. <laughs> and he says, moreover, it has some of the best lines, what does God need with a starship? Um... I don't know about a good season three TOS it's an episode. Average season three episode. <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's some gems in season three. I, that's that why I said then, average. Yeah. There's the good G- TNG. Uh, good season threes are better. <laughs> uh, Dan Gunther tweets: Last time I watched, one thing I noticed is that whenever Kirk is on screen, he's being amazing, and when he's not, characters are talking about how amazing he is. Uh, got really irritating. However, I do love the Bone Spot Kirk camping scenes. Nice character bits for them. 
Um, yeah, thanks, Dan. Y'all can um, subscribe to his channel at Kurt Traps Productions or uh, follow him on the Literary Treks podcast. He's a really great uh, Star Trek fan to uh, to listen to and get his take on stuff. I'm going to round this out with a very short one from Ross Okoye, who tweets, Don't make us revisit this for the love of God. <laughs> um, uh, that's all part of it. That's, uh, that's part of the text Trek voyage. Maybe, uh, maybe God is in here. <laughs> oh, why are no, we wait, doing no, this no, podcast? That's in di- <laughs> full circle. That's indigestion. <laughs> that's acid reflux. Well, um, but I think that's uh, enough said about this. Of course, if you have any opinions on Star Trek V, be sure to let us know. Um, also, be sure to check us out next week when we are talking about uh, the last TOS crew movie, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And after that, we'll be jumping straight into the TNG-era movies with Star Trek Generations and Star Trek First Contact. So if you have any uh, interesting uh, opinions or comments or questions that you want to bring to our attention before we talk about those movies... The transition means... from, from TOS to TNG is, is definitely an interesting, <laughs> uh, interesting yeah. era. Yeah, let us know what you think about that, and uh, we might be using your responses in future Text Trek content. Uh, but as always, we'll be back next Sunday, and until then, live live long long and prosper, prosper, y'all. Thank all of you so much for checking out this installment of Text Trek. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Please be sure to like our YouTube videos and subscribe to our channel. Uh, Audio-only version of episodes are available at our website, www.text-trek.com. Please check out our site, especially if you just want to audio only podcast Uh, we have that available for you y'all can also keep up with us online you can follow us on twitter at txtrek or you can uh, check us out on facebook at www.facebook.com slash text-trek please by all means let us know what you think by dropping a comment anywhere you see fit Uh, We definitely want to hear your feedback. Let us know what you liked and what you would like to see more of, what you would like to see differently going forward. If you want to email me directly, uh, go ahead. I can be reached at fatheryactual at text-trek.com. Thank all y'all again. Take care.